0: Welcome to the Extraordinary Creatives podcast. I'm Kerry Hand, your host and creative coach. Join me each week as we delve into the journeys of creative trailblazers, aiming to inspire you to embrace your creativity and chart your own unique path. This week, I'm joined by visionary filmmaker Jenkin Fonseil, whose style he himself described as a theatrical ballet dancer dragged through a hellmouth, a true fusion of artistry and intensity. Raised in suburbia, Jenkins sought creative expression in London squat parties as a teenager, immersing himself in the DIY ethos of an artistic lifestyle. Queer club culture allowed him to explore and convey complex ideas about masculinity and identity through unique costuming. Jenkin emphasizes the significance of discovering your authentic voice and surrounding yourself with honest, supportive confidants who aren't afraid to provide straightforward guidance. Hey, welcome Jenkin. It's so brilliant to have you join us on The Extraordinary Creatives. How are you doing?
1: I'm good, thank you. Yeah, it's good to be on.
0: I'm so happy that you're here. So Jenkin, I really loved hearing you introduce yourself on a, a video. It was a Vogue video, I think, that you did for them mm-hmm. a while ago. And so let's see if I can get this right. You described your style as uh, I think it was a highly theatrical ballet dancer that's been dragged through the medieval hellmouth, <laughs> which made me think, yeah, he's my kind of guy. <laughs> uh, and um, I wondered, um, because you're such an incredible uh, artist with so many diverse, different ways of working, How how do you usually describe yourself?
1: So I guess, I guess like the core of all the projects that I work on is filmmaking. So I describe myself as a filmmaker, but that kind of inevitably spills out into, um, kind of sculptural works, uh, drawings, uh, performance, writing, um, and often those films will get shown in these, um, sort of funhouse mirror versions of the the worlds that the films have been shot in. And so, um, there's a lot of installation and, and kind of world building that happens. Um, and yeah, so that's it's it's kind of a, a slippery uh genre and, and multifaceted practice.
0: Yes, pretty expansive creativity, I guess. And one of the reasons I wanted to talk to you was because of that uh unbounded thinking that you bring to your work and and way of living your life. I guess before we get stuck into where you are now, I wondered if we could kind of whiz back to where it all started because I know you're brought up in a leafy suburb, right, by parents, South African parents. Is that right?
1: Yeah, yeah. So um uh, I um I guess like if, if we're to trace back like the the kind of creative origin story, I was making a lot of um of these kind of really gaudy um, uh, paintings when I was younger. So there would be of these kind of Dionysian masses of swirling bodies that I would like stick loads of broken costume jewelry over and, um, in retrospect, they have like nothing to do with what I'm working on now. Um, and I can trace stuff back a bit better to, um, being this kind of overactive theatrical kid that would, um, rope in like children in the area to like make, uh, sort of, uh, versions of of soap operas or to put on like, uh, theater shows behind, um, curtains in the living room. Um, and I never thought of that as art, obviously at the time, but, um, I think it points to this, like inextinguishable desire to be an artist or like to be kind of, um, a maker. Um, and, um, I think that in, in that sort of logic that was established then, I, I sort of see, uh, early echoes as the way that I work now with performers and the sort of unbridled chaos and, um, love of improv and, um, and, and working with, with kind of characters, um. So yeah, so that's, that's kind of, um, but, but when I was a kid, I, I really wanted to be a stop motion animator. So that was like my, my driving force and I would, um, I was, uh, I guess in, in early shades of, uh, my interest in horror, I would make these quite, uh, horrific animations with, um, awful me, um, my parents, uh, uh, as you said south african and they uh have like a huge love for uh, offal like they love like sheep's head and <laughs> um, brain and liver and all this all this stuff and so i kind of use bits of their um their leftovers and and animate them um uh into these kind of chaotic unbridled uh masses of of flesh
0: how uh, did you even know how to do that how did you learn to do it um so i had
1: i just did it with a webcam um and there was like a, I, I loved like Ardman animations and then um as my like uh breadth developed, like I, I was fascinated with this uh Czech animator called Jan Schwankweier that um mm. that kind of made a lot of animation out of taxidermy and and um and junk and kind of reformatted them into fantastical creatures and, and also this other uh these brothers called the Brothers Quay that that made a lot of work that referenced uh um and so that that like uh just totally fascinated me and uh and sort of started this um fascination with with animation and and reanimation and um and how to kind of take discarded items and to turn them into something that that have like new life or or kind of new um new worlds attached to them so kind of see see a lot of the the logic of uh, stop motion in the way that I still make films um,
0: yeah, 100%. And this is something that your parents were supportive of, I take it. you kind of filming um, their offal yeah. and uh, I, dressing up at I, guess
1: I, have, I have, like, the world's most supportive parents now. Like They're, they're like, my biggest fans. So my mum kind of acts as, like, a costume dresser on set for me. She, like, helps um, helps getting the, the silicone mask on. Um, but I think at the time, my dad just, like, wanted me to be a rugby player. Like, he, he would, like, drive <laughs> me, literally crying every Sunday to, like, rugby oh. practice. Um, and just wanted me to, to be a kind of, um, yeah, like a, uh, a wingman or whatever, but, um, tried and failed, I guess. (laughs) (laughs) He
0: was was an engineer, wasn't he, your dad? Yeah,
1: he's He's an an engineer. engineer. He he has this kind of, um, very lateral logic of fixing things or like, um, uh, kind of bizarre, uh, inventor style way of, of like making things in the house that I think I can read into the way that I saw. um still make stuff uh, for sure
0: yeah so that there's something about building something or fixing something or creating something mm. that wasn't there before so in a way yeah. problem solving creatively yeah. um mm-hmm. you can see that parallel
1: so i think it, in a way it doesn't ultimately make sense like he doesn't he would never take the easiest or like most sensible route to fixing something so if there's like something broken in the house rather than like replacing it with something that's efficient he will build some kind of awkward contraption out of duct tape and bits of like leftover wood. Um, and it I looks, hideous, but, um, you know, so the whole, their the whole house is like filled with kind of like odd kind of fixings and things that he's like reformulated. Um,
0: Amazing. That sounds like a sculpture. Or <laughs> in, in my mind, it's like that old game from the 70s. You're too young to remember probably, yeah. but it was called Mousetrap, which was just like, you would take like forever to set this bloody thing up. And all it was, was a cage that would drop on top on top of a mouse. Yeah, but, yeah. yeah it reminds me of that that comes to mind. So yeah. in this leafy suburban starting point, and you're starting to feast on all these things, where where was your jumping off point? Where were you looking for your tribe or how did you start to find your tribe?
1: Mm-hmm. Um, I guess like
0: from, from the age of like 13
1: up, I was escaping up to London, um, cause it was like a, a 40 minute train. Um, and so I would, I would go spend like weekends like sleeping in the train stations of London, like trying to find out where stuff was happening. Um, and I think that like, created this like fantasy of like what growing up as an artist could look like in the city. And so, um, they were kind of, um, like early, early stuff that I was going to was like these kind of squat parties that was formulating around East London and Shoreditch and stuff. Um, things that like, couldn't really happen now because that, um, has all been legislated against so, um, intensely, but, um, I think that was a really exciting and bizarre, like squatting scene at the time that was enabling to like a lot of artists to, to kind of live in like a really, um, admittedly chaotic and like, uh, slightly, uh, sloppy way, but also like provides a lot of, uh, kind of freedom, I guess. Um, mm. you don't really see in, in the way that London set up at the minute. Um, and yeah, so that, that kind of provided a path for me to like, know that I wanted to, to study art and like to kind of pursue that as a, um, a kind of way of living, not only as a kind of career, um, and yeah. And then I moved up to London when I was 18 to do a foundation, um, and simultaneously to that kind of became immersed in the the city's nightlife. Um, and kind of discovered the, um, this kind of attraction to uh, fancy dress and like remaking and, and, um, and costuming like had a, a really exciting um, context, like within club culture and that that could become like a vehicle to um, express and to, to experiment and um, importantly to like not um, treat this for something stable, but something that could be ridiculous. And that, you know, at that that point it was very much like taking a duvet and like putting a, uh, like tie around it and turning it into an outfit, like obviously looking absolutely ridiculous and, and hideous, but that's like part of the attraction of it. And I think, mm. um, yeah, I kind of, um, in a way missed that freedom of, of, um, of chaos and, uh, uh, quickness that, that, um, that that time kind
0: of had. Um, So something about that sort of DIY um, Mm -hmm. approach to creating Mm -hmm. an identity, even if a transitory um, sort of identity for a period, what else did that club culture give you at the time? Um,
1: Like a lot of hangovers. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I think, I think it's, it's like London's club culture, obviously always has been a site for, um, uh, for kind of meeting people that, 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 that have ended up being collaborators or people that I still work with now and so a lot of like people that have also ended up mounting art careers or, or still making work like I'm at in within the first like six months of moving to London um and I think the having not only that peer group of people that are the same age as you but also have the same attraction to to kind of um fringes or subculture is like um important to me um and I think um like club culture more broadly can be this like space for renegotiating the boundaries of, of, um, of like how to live. And and that's something that that you learn within subculture, but can be extractable and, and kind of, uh, taken into the, the like outside world, um, And I'm and I'm still really interested in the way that um, kind of escapism or or fantasy or, or subculture and the kind of world building that happens within them um, can also reflect like some of the politics of the spaces that surround them. Um, mm. And so I think that that was kind of an early imprint of that. Um, how did that start? Like, so- yeah.
0: Sorry, how did that start feeding into your foundation work?
1: Um, God, I'm trying to remember what I was doing on foundation. Um, I think there was also like a concurrent um, spaces that I was going out in, um, these kind of vestiges of the last sort of like squat related scene, art, art scenes that were in London. Um, so my friends ran this space called Sat that was in, um, I think it, it, moved through various sites, but it ended up, um, kind of finding this like six story warehouse building in, in Lewisham, um, and. It was, it was so enormous that like each month they would like find a whole, like a kind of trap door that would lead to a new kind of wow. abandoned corridor. It was like this sprawling, like uh terrifying building. Um, and they would throw lots of, um, kind of anarchic parties and and club nights and, um, the basement floor was this enormous, um, uh, they kind of car park type, uh, uh, concrete space. And they would, um, hand it over to different artists to to make work in. And so that's the first kind of space that I did, um, an exhibition in. Um, and at the time I'd been, um, this is when I was on my BA at Slade. Um, and at the time I'd been kind of avidly collecting detritus from, uh, uh, movie sets. So I would just like email through different producers or like different spaces and anything that they were throwing out for free. I would, um, get and like store in the car park outside of, uh, Slade in the back, um, storage unit. Um, and so the exhibition that I made there was this kind of cruising ground built out of all of this detritus and vestiges of, of film sets, um, with a kind of, um, film score throughout it. And, um, I just can't, I can't think of like what an equivalent space would be now, but I think that was really important to, to have the low pressure, um, uh, anarchic space that you could just kind of overhaul, um, do whatever in for free, um, and it ended up descending essentially in the private view to just being a party. Um, the film in, in the, um, in the back of the space was about Foley sound, which is the kind of post-production of, of audio for, um, the film and, and TV. Um, and I was really interested in, in the kind of almost Catholic transubstantiation that happens to ordinary objects in the sound design. So they'll take things like, um, a watermelon or a, a cabbage and through kind of pulping it, that becomes a human body. Um, mm. and so I like the suspension of disbelief and the transformation that, that happened. And the films kind of featured these, um, kind of stunt actors that were caught between front and backstage kind of pulping, um, versions of their bodies that were like cabbages and watermelons. And so the opening, we made cocktails that were served inside cabbages and they were like the most disgusting, like <laughs> vodka, vodka, pulps. Um,
0: they look like think, brains.
1: Yeah, exactly. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah, so that, that was kind of the first, um, show that I put on and I think that has a direct link to, to the sort of like nightlife stuff that I was, um, going to at that point. Yeah. It's
0: pretty ambitious for a BA show. Have you always been a massivist in your thinking?
1: Yeah, I think, I think so. I'm, I'm, I'm attracted to like scale and, um, complexity and, and, a kind of sandwich method of making stuff So, like, I tend to have like an additive way of, of world building rather than a subtractive one. Um, and I think often the works about holding kind of seemingly disparate or, or different, um, points of reference and figuring out a way to like make them all cohere and, 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 uh, reinforce one another. Um, so yeah, it's definitely, definitely always, uh, scraping it you know, the outer edges of what's possible. Um, Mm.
0: So would you say it was that degree show where you started really defining your style for once for better word, that's a shorthand to kind of reoccurring obsessions or reoccurring things that come through Mm -hmm. your work now?
1: Yeah. So the eventual degree show that I did at Slade is probably the, the thing that established like most of the logics and, and kind of scaffolding of how I work now, um, and, um, I mentioned this show that I did before what at, um, at, well, it was called Dig at that time in, in Lewisham um, and um, although that had like elements of film it was more about this kind of sculptural aftermath of, of Hollywood productions and I started to think about the fact that a lot of the work that I've been making were almost places that were waiting for a film to, to occur in them or mm-hmm. waiting for a performance to happen and yet I would never really considered like that as the, the focus it was always an, an afterthought and so Moving into my final year at Slade, I um, thought about how to kind of continue using this idea of, of uh, detritus to my advantage. And I remember that there's this like big complex of film sets in the South of Spain, um, where they shot, um, a lot of the Italian spaghetti Westerns Mm -hmm. and so the South of Spain became an Italian productions way to like recreate the American desert for cheaper labor costs. Um, and a, a kind of a way to to imagine the American West. Um and it's basically just a huge complex of semi-abandoned, kind of like poorly maintained uh sets from like the Clint Eastwood uh kind of years. And um we booked like two um booked like really cheap kind of Ryanair flights with um just a bunch of like jock straps and cowboy hats <laughs> and our rock and um basically were like, camped on the outer rim of the, the film studio. Um, and it was me and, and two friends. Um, and we kind of shot, um, basically just like snatches of improvised performance, ducking and diving from the, uh, kind of lone security guard and his dogs that were patrolling the grounds. And then we got, we got caught. The dog would kind of like chase us and we'd have to like run out, like, camp, <laughs> replot kind of character select into a different outfit yeah. and then like go back out um and um I think I was interested in in kind of reperforming or reimagining the idea of masculinity that, that those films kind of represent, but also um to kind of explore this idea of like head and stick um uh kind of like bodily uh extremity that that um I guess I was interested in from the kind of club stuff at that time um. And so the film was like this kind of really uh adrenaline-driven freefall through those sets. Um mm-hmm. the footage was necessarily like snatches of of improvised kind of chaos. And so when we got back, I had to um kind of rebuild parts of the sets there, but in nice. the living room that I was living in with Mr. Hutmate. <laughs> and so at various points, this like small space would become I would, I would get like loads of hay and like cover the floor with hay and then the next <laughs> week would be um a kind of wedding sequence that would have um you know bits of um just like tarpaulin with like um bits of paper like stuff it. and and somehow through using that and then the green screen that was a um at Slade like I managed to kind of cobble together this um extra layer of uh remaking so like the sats that we were in were obviously already this kind of remake of a false idea of the American West that had been made by American productions. And then we were kind of making another facsimile or another simulacra of that um, back in the UK. Um,
0: Love that. So. Do you know, I'm struck by a few things. One, which is just the brass balls of it, uh, uh, <laughs> Just, but also the freedom of you, you know, just packing your bag full of brilliant, uh, props and camping and the determination, you know, there's something about, what do you think, it, where did you get that drive and determination to kind of carry your vision through?
1: Mm. I don't know. It's, it's, it's like a, it's definitely like an inescapable kind of way of finding meaning. Like for me, like the, the massivity of the works and the world slot makers. and um, the the orbit point for like everything that I do. So even though I always work on a kind of project basis, but the periods of time that I'm formulating a project, like everything that I'm living or experiencing is kind of in some way polishing the, the rims of, of those worlds. And so it's, it's totally like a meaning making things for me, um, both as them making meaning for the work, but also making meaning for the way that I live. Um,
0: so by um, that, do you mean by the, the kind of the materials that you gather, the images that you're gathering in your mind's eye, the people, yeah. the characters? Yeah. How do you start storyboarding or gathering that material together?
1: Um, so it's a combination of, of um, inevitably like just trolling online, which I mm-hmm. find slow, but uh, productive eventually. But also, um, I guess when I'm looking for performers, it's kind of making sure that I'm going to see live and breathing things that that can feed into the work. Um, a lot of the projects are quite, um, like location driven. And so, um, a really important part of researching is kind of finding those like, uh, kind of key, uh, location plot points. Um, and so at the, at the minute in this new project that I'm doing, I'm, I'm in the most, uh, kind of surface level thing. Like I'm, I'm in the process of, of making the styling in like wardrobe, but mm-hmm. in some ways like that's one of the most important aesthetic world building points. So like I find it one of the most consuming and like satisfying parts. So I'm currently getting loads of like frilly pink stuff <laughs> sorted. Um, but yeah. It's, where, uh, would,
0: where do you trawl for, for pink frilly stuff?
1: Um, I went to Walthamstow this weekend. Um, my mum's going to help me because she's she, she kind of used to sew her own clothes when she was a kid. So she's the only one that I know that, that has like good sewing skills. It's something that I've not quite mastered. So she's helping me kind of uh, remake some of the questions to the film at the minute. Um, and Walthamstow's
0: so, yeah. uh, part of London. It's a, um, yeah. a, a sort of a mini mini village, if you like, yeah. in London, isn't it? East London
1: it's the longest, um, market street in Europe. I think it's like, mm. uh i just like, uh, fabric shops and, and clothing store. It's amazing. Very and cheap.
0: You've, but you've always, uh, collected theatrical, um, outfits, haven't you? So from, from quite an early age, you've been dressing in like full brocade outfits, um, yeah, just to go and it, feed the ducks.
1: It's gotten more out of control in the last like five or six years, I guess. Um, mm. But it's yeah, me and my friend Alex, um, we, who also collaborates with me on, on the film. She's performed in like everything that I've done, um, has her own art practice as well. Um, but we both like have a big flat costume and, um, we'll go like anywhere in the UK to, to kind of tour through stuff. Um, we went to a really, really, really good one in, um, Yorkshire, like a month ago and everything was like. Two, three pounds for um, wow. like real antique, like uh, National Theatre, Royal Opera House, like everything. Um, Amazing. And the woman was just retiring, and she was just getting rid of all of it. So we wow. went expecting to get like a, a rucksack of stuff. And then I've like doubled my wardrobe in, in a month, pretty much. <laughs> so it's spilling it's out Amazing. now.
0: Out so just to be clear, this is, you said your wardrobe, but this is stuff that you wear yourself around town, <laughs> but also that appears in your films, right?
1: Yeah, there's a slightly different aesthetic world to the way that I dress, which is, like you say, kind of um, a lot of opera costumes, ballet costumes. Um, I, but then the kind of stuff that happens in the film, which maybe has a, a different sort of aesthetic of like almost, I like to, to reformulate things like suits or military gear with latex and um, and kind of other like sort of strange um, costume parts. But yeah. Um, Uh, there is this like similar interest in kind of collapsing the idea of history or, or kind of an anachronistic approach to history. And so I love wearing things that kind of combine like the ultra contemporary with, um, medieval and, and Elizabethan and, um, and, uh, kind of making this kind of confusing mix of, of styles and periods.
0: Um, Confusing and subverting, I guess, because there's something about those um, amazing inflatable outfits that you wear occasionally, which has got something, there's a a unification in some of the, the kind of the color coding or the, um, Mm -hmm. there's, a slightly more, a, a simpler body form. I say simpler because some of them are, they're exaggerated and extended, aren't they? So there are bodies that aren't really bodies. They're kind of becoming something other. Um And then it, in the films, there's, there's definitely this kind of fine balance between beauty and horror that permeates all of your work. Where did that love of horror come from?
1: Mm, I guess, um, I guess like a, like I was a super like spooky child, like Halloween was my uh like my, my calendar like orbited around that. And then the idea of, or the kind of potentialities that I found in that like, Halloween then started to uh seep out into like every other occasion. And so other when, kids' birthdays or like muftu days at school like would all become like uh a Halloween. Um I think <laughs> What
0: did you love about it so much? I think I think it,
1: it's that idea of like a, a day of the year that's like suspended reality and the, mm-hmm. it becomes this like portal to, to, um, transform or, or, but I think there's also, I don't know, I, like, I don't want to overemphasize the link to like queerness, but I think there is like a, uh, a sense of, you know, obviously the, the otherness, that the, um, that is applied onto like queer bodies and the otherness of like monsters that has been like emphasized mm-hmm. over, over the years, I think is interesting. Um, and then now I, I suppose, um, I'm more interested in, in, kind of taking unruly or spooky or kind of, um, terrifying, uh, uh, ciphers of, of bodies and, and kind of making them gorgeous or, or like rendering them, um, kind of beautiful and, and always attempting to overturn binary oppositions of, of, um, of yeah, the horrific and the, and the beautiful or you know, Hell and and paradise or, um, and then that comes into all sorts of other things like the front and backstage or the self and the other. Um, and, um, often it's, I guess, making a space that, that those sort of bodies that are normally othered or, um, or kind of rendered transgressive are allowed to sort of thrive or have their own kind of spaces of, of power, um, and autonomy, um, Although that's not to say that the forms don't then include power structures that sort of also limit and and um, and control uh, those bodies, but I think it's it's still like centering around kind of this idea of of deviance and celebrating um, deviance and and otherness. Um, mm.
0: I was just thinking about your technique. You use doubling and mirroring a little in the work as well, don't you? So there's a <laughs> Um, although where there's uh seeming anarchy or chaos there is that kind of underpinning of that structure in some way and i know mm. you've referred to filmmakers obviously like um almodovar and uh waters before um mm. who, who do you look to now to to fuel that kind of interest
1: my favorite so so i have a lot of interest in in like regular cinema um and so I love like Lynn, Lynn Ramsey, uh, Gaspar Noe, um, Andre Arnold, uh, like you said, like John Waters and, Bar, um, David Lynch, obviously. Um, mm-hmm. I love the like comedian, Julia Davis and, and like 90 night and all that kind of like British dark comedy. Um, and then my favorite kind of art filmmakers, um, I probably like Mika Rottenberg who, um, mm-hmm. Plus this way of so she she makes these uh surrealistic, fantastical production lines in her work that um employ or often employ um women who have extraordinary bodies or extraordinary careers online, but kind of pays them to do what they would do for their normal services within kind of production conveyor belts and to talk about um, I guess like uh labor politics, uh feminized labor politics, uh globalization. I think that she has a really good way of Using the fantastical not to be a point of escapism or like denial, but rather to use fantasy to kind of actually reinforce and to talk about things that are super contemporary and, and, and alive and, and relevant. So I think that's always because I, I think I'm I'm not super into fantasy or um or world building if it's about kind of denying the the contemporary war politics. Uh, I think it's more about finding a way
0: to talk about them. Um, mm. yeah. So I'm just going to just to rewind for a minute because um, um, I love the fact that so many of the uh, our conversation is kind of is almost world building in in our, our imaginations at the same time. Going back to the Slade your degree and you're kind of you're developing your style there. Mm. How did you start to fund and um, Develop the scale of the projects mm-hmm. that you were so passionate about developing.
1: So I guess yeah, at the point of Slade, like it was about um, using as much detritus and like free stuff that I can get a hold of, mm-hmm. and so that provided a lot of the um, the materials. And so I would um, get a hold of of these kind of big sets that that um, would cost like absolutely nothing, and then that became the sculpture material again. Like the logic of the degree show was um, kind of how can I access this idea of scale and monumentality with, um, a super like limited, uh, budget. And so the, the way of doing that was to kind of break into these sets on like 20 quid flights. Um, mm-hmm. and so that sort of set up, um, that dynamic, and then that's only you know, anything that's kind of come since then has, um, improved the production value kind of, um, made it easier to like have more people on set to kind of have mm-hmm. access to locations that aren't illegal. Um, and at that point I was kind of selling like, uh, uh theater costumes and stuff that, um, I had gotten a, a, um, at sales. That I didn't want and that still, I still kind of do that on the side now, um, kind of, uh, like flipping or like, uh, like yeah. moving on on costume stuff. Um, but, um, the. Yeah, I guess like the the thing about being an artist in London is that um, there was a really good report on this that um, some students that I was at Slade like uh, co-authored, um, and they're called Industria, and it was mm. called Str- the report, and it was about the kind of conditions of of um, being an artist in in kind of this because since I've moved to London, it's basically been a conservative government and. a a long stream of austerity measures. That means that the art world is like hugely underfunded and and kind of strapped. Um, and artist labor is often used as a kind of, um, a a kind of surrogate for that, I suppose in some ways. Mm -hmm. Um, and, um, it means that, you know, I don't, I don't really know artists that, that don't have multiple overlapping like freelance stuff alongside working. So even now when I've, you know, I have like commercial gallery representation, I'm selling work to a certain extent. um, Have like funding in place to to kind of make the films. I'm still doing you know like four different freelancing stuff on top of that. So it's a mm-hmm. difficult thing when you're working like full time as an artist on projects that optically look like they're you know well that it is a full time job, but you're still yes. having to you know have scaffolding in, in multiple other ways. So it's a tricky it's a tricky industry if you. Yeah. If,
0: Make money. <laughs> and I Well, I appreciate you being open about it because one of the reasons um, that we do what we do uh, at Carry Hand is to support artists and creatives earner money doing what they love. And I mm-hmm. think the reality of understanding kind of, you know, how you stitch these things together, I think one of the reasons that I love talking to you is because you haven't let, at the beginning of your career, you didn't let the kind of lack of funds or um, the lack of opportunities hamper your imagination and the, the world building that you wanted to create, you just found a way to do it. And I'm curious, Jenkin, what what do you think gave you the confidence to, to kind of back yourself in that way? What was it Mm. that kind of helped you to actually see that vision through?
1: I guess I'm still, still in like a a situation of being in like a, a really good set of art school. So like I went to Slade and then to the RA, I think that was, I think after I graduated from Slade and my BA, I was a bit like, fuck, I don't know what I'm doing in, in the real world now. And so I, I ended up doing like some music video direction. Mm-hmm. Um, I was working a lot doing like fashion stuff and I kind of just had to hold myself and be like, this is not actually what your trajectory is like aiming for. Um, and so I, I applied to the RA, which is a really good and, and unique course in the UK and that it's, um, it doesn't rely on government funding, so it kind of has its own, um, separate ecology, uh, which in some ways is problematic, but for the most part is like really amazing. Cause they can have total autonomy of the direction. So that's being going there, like really was transformative for me to kind of both be as experimental and as, um challenging to myself as I could be, but you know, that you're kind of held within this, um, this, uh, kind of institutional context. But I also think that, um, aside from, from that, it's about having kind of confidence in, in, um, in your worldview and, and, um, and nurturing the parts of that, that are are like super, um, unique and, and necessary and, and, to kind of see that through, which is, which is really tricky because I think being an artist has this, um, duality to it, at least in in my understanding of extreme necessary confidence to be able to like see a vision through, but also Mm -hmm. kind of crippling self-doubt and, um, and, uh, confusion with it. And so it's often quite a hard thing. I I particularly find when I've like seen and delivered a project through that kind of point of cleaving or cutting the umbilical cord of a project, you're kind of left totally from scratch again. That can be quite a difficult thing to navigate—the hilliness of these moments of extreme celebration and um, satisfaction, and and you know pride or whatever—with moments of just total self doubt. Like every project that you finished feels like you're never going to make anything ever again.
0: And, and how so, do you navigate it, that? What tools and techniques have you learned that help you with those moments of crippling self doubt? I think
1: I think it's tricky. I, like I, this last project that I did, Surrender, that I was working on for. 18 months nonstop, which I kind of finished in, in March of the show shot in March. Afterwards, I just felt so depleted and burnt out by it because it's such a, it's such an all encompassing thing for me when I'm, um, working on something like that. Um, and that's combined with all of the sort of commitments that you have on the shows. On. Um, and so I think for me, it was about going and making sure that I was doing as much stuff that, that had like physical material to, to kind of refresh and, and recharge. I think the problem in those, in those moments of, of, um, of kind of collapse, like after a project, if you, if you get stuck in a space of like digital research to try and recharge, I find that to be, um, quite, um, not suffocating but it's it's decharging for me in a way and so
0: yeah i'm so glad you said that i find i've experienced so many creative people that when they're exhausted they get sucked in i've been prone to it myself where you get sucked <laughs> into a spiral of doom on a yeah rabbit warren of digital and i think yeah so if that's not right for you what have you found works for you so,
1: um, there's a couple of places in London that I like to. See that there's uh, an archive called the Bishopsgate Archive that is in Liverpool Street. Um, and it started off as a kind of uh, individual history archive of, of uh, Londoners. And then, kind of over the last decade or so, it's switched into having a new focus and a new strand of, of LGBT archives. And um, the new kind of archivist and director, Stefan has amassed this huge amount of of kind of bizarre fetish material that is like uh kind of tracing this like history of um of like countercultural materials in in the UK and they have bizarre, like really weird stuff. Like they have um this uh collection of scrapbooks, like 25 scrapbooks they found under the bed of a Tory MP when he died. And it's just tracing his obsession with raincoats uh from the 1920s ah. until the two thousands. And so it's just like you know, thousands of images of of raincoats. But
0: amazing.
1: I love, I love this kind of sense of obsession. I'm interested in desire and obsession a lot. Um, mm-hmm. And to be able to like not only know that this thing exists, but to like physically handle it and look through it is like amazing. And I think I love
0: that. So you replenish yourself by having some in real life experiences.
1: Yeah, so. mm-hmm. yeah, yeah, and going to you know going to see as much stuff as I can. Um, you know, like theater and and shows and and going out and things that that kind of uh, enliven and activate the body rather than sort of like suffocating in, in the worst thing that you can do if you're stuck, I think is to kind of uh, force something to happen. You kind of have to wait for things to appear to you. Um, Mm.
0: What um, would you say the challenges have been for you, Jenkin, since you, since you graduated and and in the way that you work?
1: um, I think at the minute it's like, about figuring out what the long-term feasibility is of working on these kind of big film projects, mm-hmm. um, and I'm I'm really insistent that they get shown with kind of sculptural builds, but that's like not always possible to kind of store or to like archive. And so, you know, I'm kind of dealing with this like mass <laughs> of like leftover stuff from mm-hmm. installation that's like piled up in a guardianship in in uh, Willits at the minute, um, and. Um, I think, I think it's about figuring out, you know, that strategy of like how to nourish and maintain that ambition and, um, and, and yeah, like, like how, how this can can continue to be a career. Um, I think it's also like I was saying this kind of the, the workload of like juggling like multiple projects. Um, I don't, I don't work with like any studio assistants or managers or anything. And so, um, one of the things that I find tricky about being an artist is the multifacetedness of, of what you're expected to be able to do. Um, so moving from
0: your creative ideas through to project management and marketing and all that. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Mm -hmm. And so you're suddenly becoming like a shipper and a, uh, you know, a mm-hmm. spreadsheeter and a mathematician and like all this stuff, negotiating mm-hmm. between various levels of producers and galleries and institutions and yeah, like you say, the marketing and like all this kind of stuff. It's a it's a, a super like tentacled um uh, career. Um and I think that's that's like tricky to, to kind of balance it along with I've been doing more teaching work recently, which I find both charging and and kind of draining in a different way. Yes. Um, and now you have
0: a now you have a gallery. Is there more mm-hmm. chance of you having a studio assistant or manager working with you?
1: Yeah, I think that's that's I'd, I'd hope in in like a couple years' time that that, that would totally like help with the burden of, of that mm-hmm. kind of stuff. So yeah, it's figuring out like how to make all of that stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, how to make the beast
0: yeah. framed. <laughs> and what was the first thing you sold, Jenkin?
1: The first thing I sold, ooh. I think it was in the pandemic. Um and I think it was a drawing to my friend. Um wow. Yeah, so that was still fairly recent. I hadn't I might have sold like tiny things before that, but that was the first thing I remember being like, wow, this is like crazy.
0: Um, <laughs> that you can sell something you've that made. You can
1: sell something that you've made. Um because it never really I, I was making such like uncompromisingly, you know, um difficult work in terms of a commercial thing if you're if you're like an artist without representation or anything and i was just like wow this is like wow so this is this is possible (laughs) Um,
0: and is that because you you thought because you make such um such enormous scale but also diverse materials mm -hmm. that you thought actually selling something like that you thought would be difficult
1: yeah i think so And, and um and so like you know it's telling that the first thing that i sold was a drawing but then um it was at my degree show at the RA where I saw some like really weird stuff and I was like, okay, this is kind of um there is like possibility within this. So mm-hmm.
0: um What have uh, you noticed about the people that like and want to buy your work? Are there any connecting uh, threads?
1: Yeah, that's a good question. I think um I think people collectors like to a certain extent want uh kind of um uh they they, they want to be sort of like within the glow of the artist as well as mm. the work kind of, you know, often like, um, a kind of personal collection connection to the artist or, or, mm-hmm. or like they, you know, it's a way of kind of having a small jigsaw piece of, of the, the world building and the essence of like larger work, I guess, um, and so I think there's a, there's a relationship with that for sure.
0: So um, have you found if somebody's bought a, an edition of a film have that they'll also buy a sculpture? or yeah, drawing or I mean, yeah,
1: there's something cuz cuz the things that i make are so realistic that there's this idea of um of the part kind of being able to contain the whole in some way yes. or they they kind of are imbued with some of the um not not to make them into kind of talismans or whatever but that there is mm. this idea because kind of, they're connected to the world and then maybe they have some kind of sense of essence. Or... Mm.
0: And I, I'm just wondering if there's um, there's always a surprise in the artists that I've worked with, you know, the kinds of people who are drawn to their work. And uh, I was wondering if there'd been any surprises as to the the people that you've attracted so far?
1: Um, no, not really. No, not not as of yet. I'm sure that there will be.
0: <laughs> and uh, who's been the most fun to work with in terms of arts organizations or uh curators or institutions that you've worked with so far?
1: I think I think the one that's most important to me is the show that I did at Hayward Gallery in 2019. Um and it was when I was in my second year at the RA. Um and growing up, like the Hayward was always like my, my dream gal- or like, you know, inconceivably dream gallery to, to show something in. Um, and I just couldn't believe that it was happening. It was like so amazing that like, I, I hadn't shown publicly or at in any institution or any proper space at all. I'd only shown in like spots and, you know, in, in, within the universities. Um, and so that was like mind blowing. And they had the most incredible like technical producers that, um, it was just like inconceivable that that you know you could have something like built and, and made to that like level of care and 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 they've like really held and led me through didn't ask you know I had the most ridiculous proposals and ideas and they just like let me do it, which is kind of a, a dream when you're that age. Um and I and haven't could you, quite could you had say that the
0: name the name of the show, Kim?
1: Yeah, it was called Kiss My Agendas. Um and it was created by um Vincent, um Honore, who now works in um the south of France. But yeah, he was kind of the, the uh, only show I think that he did at Hayward. Um, I think we had a, a studio visit, um, kind of the first studio visit I'd ever had. Um, and he thought that I was like a, a drag queen or something that like he thought that my work was a <laughs> portraiture and came in and I was showing him all of this stuff about these film sets that I've been breaking into and the latex inflatables. And I think he was just kind of quite stoic and stony about it. I think he was kind of like, Oh, okay, this, this is like a bigger project than I thought it was. Um, and they just, yeah, they, they just like, let me do whatever. And that's, I, you know, I, I don't know if I would have had a, quite the same route through, um, my career if it wasn't for that. So I'm very grateful for that show.
0: More things came from it.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And then the pandemic hit, which obviously had a whole confusing, um, limitation to like certain things that were happening, but, uh, that definitely like set me up for the stuff.
0: What do you love the most about being an artist?
1: Um, I think it's, it's kind of, and I think I've I've said this before, but it's this idea of it creates like a framework or like an excuse for you to kind of live differently. Like it's a a really good like container for, um, for living deviantly or kind of, you know, just like living a a different kind of lifestyle. And and I think there's possibility within that to, for reimagining and, um, and all sorts of, of, of kind of exciting things. Um. And so when, when we're like shooting a film or like when I'm in the depths of like uh, a project, like it's, it's genuinely and truly like overwhelming and um, in in the best and worst ways. Um, Mm -hmm. And so that's, that's something that maybe like you only get to access as an an artist and I'm I'm grateful for that
0: Mm -hmm. for sure. And you've learned so much in a, a lightning tour through your career so far, but what would you offer artists or creative people coming up behind you hmm. or indeed in front of you what advice would you uh what inspire people? Um, I
1: think um I think that we and it's like naive to imagine that it's possible to be like optimistic at the future at the minute like I think that we live in this kind of overlapping sense of of crises and as long as I've been like an adult it's been kind of so that we live in such a culture of doom and that feels like a quite addictive state of mind to be in. Mm-hmm. Um, and my work is not kind of naively optimistic, like it's quite dark and it has like all sorts of shades of, of, um, of like horror as we've spoken about. And, and, and yeah, certainly isn't this kind of like happy, happy sort of worldview, but I think that it's really important at points in the work that we make to, to kind of not focus on the on the overwhelming state of of uh of kind of crisis but to apply kind of cpr to the kind of embers of things that are really important to like salvage well of Mm. of humanity i guess and so i try to do a bit of both in the work that i make um to kind of talk about the and the pretty kind of um contemporary state of neoliberal capitalism or whatever but to also kind of remember things that make us like uniquely human and, and um, to kind of include moments of empathy or, or liveliness, um, solidarity, community, all this stuff. So I think it's, I think that's important to kind of hold on to.
0: Mm. So there's a sort of being aware and being um, participating in the current uh, mm-hmm. state of the world, but also finding moments for joy and optimism mm-hmm. and uh, celebration.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, celebration's is a good word. I think
0: mm-hmm.
1: I'm like, um, yeah, I'm into this like idea of, um, I guess, the carnivalesque kind of is a way to kind of counteract. Um, I think there's there's two ways that you can look at this idea of of joy. Like, one is to think about it in terms of excess, which applies like a limit to the amount of mm-hmm. joy that you can ever achieve, and that to go over that limit is to excess. I'm kind of more interested in the films and the work that I make to talk about ideas of, ab- of abundance, which is like mm. endless. Um, and so I like, I like the kind of Lask as a way to kind of access that, this idea of mischief or lightness or, um, uh, kind of nuisance and trickery to, to, to kind of invoke a state of play as like a, uh, a necessary and, um, vital human, uh, condition.
0: So. Yeah. I love that. And, uh, here's to being a nuisance. More often. <laughs> um. One last thing. What are you working on currently?
1: Um. So I'm just about to go to Liverpool um next week to start installing a new version of my my film Surrender. Um. And so that's going to involve um a massive like uh, inflatable wrap that you'll watch the film inside a dome inside the stomach. Um. A big uh like mirrored trophy room with like five meter four meter tall. Uh, stacks of energy drinks, um, so that's going to be kind of wild and exciting to install. And then I'm mainly working on um, starting a new film project um, that has a working mm. title of Devotion Dome, and that's going to um, yeah, kind of track these amphibian creatures passage through a, a kind of spa unit. Um, and so I'm yeah just in the, the kind of pre-production of that at the minute, the, the sort of writing
0: Mm, the writing—how does
1: that evolve? Um, so, variously. I, I mean, the last project I kind of wrote back and forth with my friend Brittany Newell, who's a, a novelist. Um, and I think that, that I might kind of approach a writer to do a similar kind of world building, pre-pre filming world building. But at the minute, I'm I'm kind of writing a very basic narrative structure um, and sort of identifying like what things have to be made out of it, essentially like props and and costuming and, and locations to just. Kind of map out uh, uh, an initial budget, but um, yeah, and then and then it's a then it gets the point of being able to embellish and and kind of daydream over that structure, and that's the that's the fun bit.
0: And do you sense check that with anybody? Like, how do you know it's good at any point?
1: That's yeah, a good question. I mean, I think I have I have certain really core cool people that I speak to like really regularly. So, Alex, that I mentioned before, like mm-hmm. we speak on for at least like two hours to three hours every day while we're doing. Mm-hmm menial task, but that, that's like yeah. a really essential kind of centering thing. And, um, we're so involved in the, um, criticality of each other's works that, you know, that's, that's a reliable back and forth, but then I have, you know, my, my friend Liv that I said that the RA with like, we have a really good, um, like practical and formal kind of relationship. She helped me install the tube system and a lot of the last installation, she's coming up to Liverpool, but, um, and then I have friends like my friend, Jordan Tannehill, the, um, is a writer and kind of provides like good, um, kind of reflection on work. So, I think, yeah, it's, it's about identifying those key confidants and figuring out like what mm. aspect they're like best to, um, uh, reinforcing or, or kind of calling you out on. Um, so they,
0: they give you honest feedback,
1: yeah, yeah. I mean, like, Alex is like one of the rudest people I know, but she's <laughs> like, she's like, totally rude to the extent that you have to have a. I have to like then you know overcompensate with an extreme center of gravity about the work to be able to sort of like um,
0: come out unscathed the hurling
1: shit that she's throwing at me. <laughs> so, <I> think, yeah,
0: <laughs> that's great. So you've got yourself a posse of people that can have got your backs, but also want the best for you by giving you honest feedback. I love that. Yeah. Thank you so much for taking time uh, to speak today, and you know it's such a pleasure to see your work and the bravery that you express in the work you know and the willingness to go to those other places that some of us can't reach um to help us think about the world differently so long may it continue thanks for all of the work that you do jenkin thank you thanks so much ciao please follow and share the podcast it helps us to support more brilliant creatives like you recommend future guest suggestions in your reviews they might well become part of our show thanks for being part of our creative community until next time